Good morning. Uh, what a blessing it is to uh, gather together in, in unity, praising our Lord and Savior. We are going to continue our study through the book of First Timothy. And so go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles to First Timothy chapter 1. Uh, last week we looked at how Paul urged Timothy to remain in Ephesus, that he may charge those who were teaching a false doctrine to, to stop their divisive and destructive behavior. Uh, the purpose in Paul's charge was love. Uh, because he loved the Lord, because he loved the church. Uh, he wanted what was best for them. These false teachers had a, a abandoned the simple truth of the gospel and God's word that had been given to them through uh, the Apostle Paul. They had resorted to all sorts of fables and, and tales and hidden knowledge that brought absolutely no benefit to the body whatsoever, no edification. Knowledge, uh, we know the scriptures tell us that knowledge puffs up, but it's love that edifies. Paul, because he loved the church in Ephesus, he, he wanted to see them edified. He wanted to see them built up in the Word of God and in the love of God and in their faith uh, in God. And so these false teachers, they were opposing that work. And Paul gave a very strong command to Timothy that he needed to make sure he dealt with this issue. Now, in our study last week, Paul did bring up the law because these teachers, uh, these false teachers, wanted to be seen and known as teachers of the law, but they didn't know what they were talking about. Now, Paul did affirm the law, okay? He said that it was good, but he did give a qualifying statement to that declaration. He said the law was good if one uses it lawfully, uh, the idea being if we use it the way it was intended to be used, which is to lead us to Jesus Christ. The law is powerless to save us. All it does is condemn us. It shows us our need for a Savior. You know, keeping the law was never meant to be a way in which we would be saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, okay? That is the only way to be saved. There is no other way. And the law, it tells us the bad news, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. That is what we deserve because of our sin. But the gospel tells us the good news, that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins, that he took our place upon the cross of Calvary, and he triumphed over sin and death, and offers to us his victory. He offers to us his righteous standing before the Lord, if we will turn to him and confess our sins and our faith in him. Now, a proper understanding of the bad news of the law is needed that we may understand the good news of the gospel. We've all blown it, and, and we're all deserving of death, but Jesus died in our place, and he offers to us the forgiveness of sins and a right standing before the Lord. And for that, I am eternally grateful, and I'm sure most all of you are as well. Now, when we realize just how the bad news and the good news work, when we understand the situation we are in and the grace that's been poured out upon us, it ought to have that kind of effect upon us. We ought to be eternally grateful, right? And that is exactly what we're going to read about today in our text. Paul just finished listing off a number of people who the law was given for. It was a list filled with all sorts of various kinds of sinners, from the ungodly and the profane, uh, various uh, murderers and kidnappers and fornicators and a whole host of others that had, uh, who would engage in activities contrary to sound doctrine. And then he concluded mentioning the glorious gospel that he had been entrusted with. And I think that listing of those in need, of those lost in their sin, that it had an impact upon Paul that, that he could not deny. And I believe it really spurred what we read next in our account of 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's almost as if, you know, he's, he's giving Timothy this charge and he's saying, okay, you got to, you know, combat this false teachers, combat these false teachers and all these things that are going on. And then he just has this like, epiphany, this, this flashback of just all that God's done in his life. And then in verse 18 and 19 and 20, he's going to get back to that. But it's this 12 through 17, our text this morning is just this, this personal retrospect, if you will, of Paul looking back upon his life and, and just being in awe of all that God had done 
in and through him. So our text this morning is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, and the title of our message is going to be a personal retrospect, okay? A personal retrospect. Will you all rise to your feet in honor of God and his word? I'm going to read through our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible, so I want to encourage you, if you're reading from a different translation, just do your best to follow along, okay? Paul continues his letter to his son in the faith with the following in chapter 1, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to, be, to believe on him for everlasting life. Verse 17, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and this opportunity that we have to gather here to continue in an act of worship. As Pastor Nick uh, mentioned, Lord, we worship you not only in the songs that we sing, but we worship you with and through the study of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be at our uh, heart's attention, Lord, that you would just draw us into your presence and that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us into all truth, that your Holy Spirit may open up our ears and our hearts that we might receive all that your Spirit desires to show to us today. We give you this time, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our account this morning, it opens up in verse 12 with Paul thanking Jesus Christ. But the word that's used here for thank is not the normal word that's used when speaking about giving thanks. The word thank in its various forms, whether that's thank or thanks or thanked or thankful or thankfulness, okay, uh, all those different times it's translated that way in the English, uh, it pops up 58 times uh, in the New Testament. And uh, of those 58 times, it's usually from the Greek root word eukaristeo. Uh, actually, of the 58 times, 46 of the times, it's eukaristeo. And so that's the common word that they would use for giving thanks. But that is not the word that Paul used here. Okay, the word thank comes from the two Greek words, echo, which means to have, and karin, which means in favor of or for the pleasure of. Paul just spoke of how he had been entrusted with the gospel in verse 11, and now he thanks Jesus because of the great pleasure that it brings to Paul to have been entrusted with the gospel. It brought Paul great delight to have this wonderful gift, and he thanked Jesus for it. And in our text, we see that specifically Paul mentions three things that he was giving thanks for, or three things that brought him great pleasure. Number one, first of all, Paul mentions how Jesus Christ had enabled him. And I really like the wording here in the New King James Version. Okay, some translations use the word strength or strengthened, but I like the idea of the word enabled better. Because I think sometimes the idea behind the word strengthen is the idea of enhancing what is already had, something we already have. Uh, in this context, it would be as if saying Jesus simply enhanced or strengthened something Paul already had within him. But when we use the word enable, the idea is more that Jesus gave to him the ability to do what he had called him to do. It wasn't something he had necessarily, but more so something that came from Christ. And Paul realized and understood that whatever power he did have to do the work of the ministry, well, that power originated from God. God always enables those whom he calls. And Paul was no different. 
Okay? God had called him and entrusted to him the gospel, and he enabled him, he empowered him to do the work that he was calling him to. God is not looking for people that will rely upon their own strength and their own power, but those who will realize that any power that they do have comes from the Lord and that they are completely dependent upon him for everything. And so that's number one, that the first thing that Paul was thankful for and took pleasure in. But number two, second, Paul found great pleasure in the fact that God had counted him faithful. Paul had been entrusted with the gospel. He was a steward of the mysteries of God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. And then verse 2 tells us, the scripture teaches us that the one thing that's required amongst stewards is that they be found faithful. Paul was a faithful steward of the gospel. But even that designation, okay, that judgment of Christ to count him as faithful, was an act of God's mercy upon Paul. Because he testifies of such in his letter to the Corinthians, stating that he gives judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 that word trustworthy in 1 Corinthians 7, it's the same exact Greek word that's used here that's translated as faithful. And so Paul's faithful standing, his status as one who was trustworthy, well, it was all a work of God's mercy upon Paul. The third thing that Paul mentioned that brought him great pleasure was uh, the fact that Christ had put him into the ministry. The word ministry simply means service, okay? Uh, sometimes we glorify it a little bit today in the church. Oh, I'm going to call to the ministry, and, and we you know, use the title minister, like, oh, he's a minister, um, as a, you know, in a respectful way. But really, you know, to be a minister of God is just to be a servant of God and His people. Paul's placement in the ministry is not something most would have ever thought of doing. In fact, even after his salvation experience, it took some convincing of others to get them to come alongside him. If you're familiar with the, his account, his uh, salvation experience there in Acts chapter 9, you know of uh, Ananias. And the Lord came to Ananias as Ananias was praying, and the Lord told him, hey, I, you know, basically he said, hey, I want you to go to this place, and there's going to be a guy there. His name's Saul of Tarsus. I want you to go pray for him. I, you know, I've told him that there's going to be a guy named Ananias that's going to come pray for him. And, and Ananias okay, replied to God's directing him to go, saying, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Ananias was basically saying, God, are you sure you got the right man? You know, God, are you sure that's who you want me to go look for? And you want me to pray for him to lay hands on him? And even after he got saved and God started working in his life, using him to preach the gospel, many Christians thought it was just a, a, a ploy, that it was a trap on Paul's part to capture them. Even the disciples themselves were even afraid of him, and they didn't believe that he was a true disciple, a, a true follower of the Lord. Paul's preparation for the ministry and his placement into the ministry was all a work of Christ upon his life. It wasn't his choosing or any other disciple or apostle's choosing. It was Christ who saw him, called him, enabled him, and ultimately put him into his service. And Paul was so incredibly thankful for that. He received great joy and pleasure from the work Christ had done in him. And family, we ought to have that same kind of response, right? We ought to have that same kind of joy, that same sort of pleasure, knowing and understanding the work that God has done in our hearts and in our lives. Well, as Paul contemplated God's work in him, it reminded him of the kind of life that he once lived. It reminded him of his past. And so take a look at the beginning of verse 13 to read a little bit about what Paul was like before he came to know Christ. Verse 13 says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer 
a persecutor and an insolent man. We'll stop right there. Paul's past was something that distinguished him from most others. He does not exaggerate his past here to try and make his conversion all the more amazing, right? Paul was a very, very bad man, okay? He described his old self as a blasphemer, Okay? The word speaks of one who is abusive and slanderous. In respect to God and Christ, Paul reviled them. Not only was he a blasphemer, but he also went around causing others to blaspheme as well. In Acts chapter 26, Paul testifies of his past actions and how he punished them often in every synagogue, and he compelled them to blaspheme. Blaspheme. It wasn't enough for him to blaspheme the name of Christ. He went around forcing other people to do the same. He was a persecutor of the church and of Christ. Paul was there during the stoning of Stephen, consenting to the uh, death of the first Christian martyr. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it tells us that he was there consenting to that. At the end of chapter 7, we're told that all the people, the witnesses, they came and they laid down their coats at the feet of Saul. And so Saul was there. He was one of the ringleaders that was there to stone Stephen. The book of Acts tells us that he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison all because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Later in Acts, when speaking before an angry Jewish mob, he testified, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. You see, those he did not kill, he threw into prison. And it didn't matter if you were man, woman, or child, entire families he would seek out. He was relentless in his pursuit and his persecution. And his objective was very clear. He wrote about it in the book of Galatians. He wrote there, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That was Paul's mission. He wanted to single-handedly destroy the church of God. And not only was he a blasphemer and a persecutor, he was also an insolent man. Your translation may read that he was violent and or arrogant man. The idea behind this word is that it speaks of one who mistreats others for the pleasure they gain from it. It made Paul feel good to find Christians in synagogues, in their homes, and either have them killed or beaten or dragged off to prison. He continually breathed out murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, seeking them out as some sort of prize trophy that he could add to his collection of all the Christians that he got. Oh, I got one of the disciples of the Lord. He was a violent and I would say disturbing man that was feared by most the entire early church in the first century. And the crazy thing to consider is that Paul thought he was serving God and honoring God while doing all of this. He testified before Herod Agrippa II in Acts chapter 26 of how he himself thought he must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul sincerely believed that this new sect known as the way, the Christians in the first century were known as the way, it was known as a sect of Judaism, okay, he believed that this new sect was an attack upon Judaism, and it was an attack upon the God of the Jews. It's interesting, and it does make me wonder if Jesus had Paul in mind when he spoke to the disciples prior to his crucifixion, telling them of how they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service did Jesus have Saul of Tarsus in his mind when he declared that to the disciples that day? Was he thinking of the one who would later become Paul the Apostle, one of the greatest persecutors of the church within the first century? Because it fits the description pretty well. And you guys, as we look back and remember Paul's past and the life that he lived, it ought to sober us up a bit. 
it ought to cause us to stop and think a bit about the things we do and the things that we say about others. Paul was very sincere in his actions. He thought he was serving God, but he was sincerely wrong. He was persecuting God and trying to destroy God's precious church. You see, there's a danger, even within the body of Christ, to be and act like Saul of Tarsus, to blaspheme, persecute, and arrogantly attack the wrong people, all while thinking we are serving and honoring God. We need to make sure that the things that we are coming against truly are the enemy. Because there are many within the church that may not look, act, speak, and think the exact same way that you and I do. (laughs) And just because they're different doesn't mean that they're the enemy. There is diversity in the body of Christ, right? The church is likened to a whole body. And a body's got a, a head and nose and uh, ears and mouths and shoulders and arms and a torso and legs and feet and toes, many various parts that do many various things, different things, but important things, things that allow us to function as a whole. Too many people are wasting their time fighting against their brothers and sisters in Christ when they ought to be engaging the real enemy that's out there, the powers and principalities and rulers of the darkness of this age and the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, there is a war that we need to engage in. We just need to make sure we're engaging the proper target. And as we look at Paul and and realize that he thought he was fighting the good fight, waging war for God when he was waging war against God. And so we better be careful. Well, in contrast to his past, Paul then speaks of the work of Christ and where he is at in the present. Read the rest of verse 13 and 14 with me. He says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Though Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, he obtained mercy. Remember that mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Right? We can kind of liken it to justice is getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And then grace is getting what you don't deserve. God's mercy was upon Paul because the things that he did, he did in ignorance and in unbelief. Now, I need you to all understand that ignorance and unbelief are not a license that allows us to get away with sin. Okay? Not at all. We are held accountable for the things that we do based upon whether we did them in ignorance or in full knowledge. If we sin, we sin, okay? But the way in which God disciplines and works in those situations will be different. In the Old Testament, there were different laws for those who sinned willfully and those who did so ignorantly or unintentionally. In the book of Numbers, it describes how a sacrifice could be offered to bring atonement for those who sinned unintentionally. Numbers 15 reads, and if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering, for the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally when he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. But it then states a few verses later, but the person who does anything presumptuously or defiantly Whether he is native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. The idea is that if you did something unintentionally, well, you can go and make sacrifice for that sin, and it would be forgiven. But not so much for those who committed sin willfully and defiantly. No forgiveness was made available for you, and you were to be completely cut off from the congregation. And this isn't just an Old Testament principle either. We might like, oh, that's the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament now. And all this, Jesus taught this same principle in his parable of the faithful steward. In Luke chapter 12, we read of how Jesus asserted, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, 
shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. This same heart is even on display when Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary for us, and there upon the cross he declared, Father, forgive them. Why? Because they do not know what they do. For Paul, God was merciful towards him, giving him an opportunity to respond to the gospel message of Christ when he revealed himself to him along the road to Damascus. Now, not only did Paul receive mercy, but also grace. Grace and mercy go hand in hand. God's mercy is an act of God's grace. When God grants us mercy and doesn't give us what we do deserve, in essence, he's showing us his grace by giving to us his mercy that we don't deserve. And I love how Paul describes the grace of our Lord here. He calls it exceedingly abundant, or at least that's how it's translated in the English, okay? The phrase exceedingly abundant in the English is actually one single word in the Greek, and it would seem to be a word that Paul coined himself, okay? It's only used this one time in the New Testament. It's a compound word where Paul took the prefix hooper, which means above or over or beyond, and he attached it to a word that means to have more than enough. And so God's grace to Paul was not just more than enough. It was above and over and beyond more than enough, okay? It was super abundant, we might say. It was exceedingly abundant. The fact that Paul seems to have had to coin a new phrase here to describe God's grace just goes to show how God's grace is greater than any words we could ever use to describe it. Along with God's grace came the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul went from speaking blasphemy to pronouncing blessing. He went from being a persecutor of the church and the truth to being a preacher to the church and of the truth. He went from being a murderer to a minister. All that Paul ever did was overcome by the grace of God. God's grace upon him resulted in mercy being extended to him, and the grace of God replaced Paul's unbelief with genuine faith. It replaced hate for Christ and his followers with a love for Christ and his followers. That is how powerful the grace of God is. You know, we sing the song Amazing Grace, right? It's a popular one, a favorite one, and it's a great song. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But do we really, do we really understand just how amazing God's grace truly is? Do we understand the power of God's grace? Have you experienced the grace of God flowing over you, washing you and cleansing you and completely changing you, making you a completely new person? Because that is the power of God's grace. It has the ability to completely change a life. It has the ability to bring life to death from death, and it has the ability to take a, a thousand broken pieces of our life and to take them and make them whole again. That is the grace of our Lord. And, and I would f- confess to you that I think amazing is an insufficient description of the grace of God. Exceedingly abundant is not sufficient. Words are not enough to describe the grace of our Lord. Whatever we call it, no matter how well we speak it, it will fall short. Let's continue in our account. We'll take a look at Paul's priority, the beginning of verse 15. There he writes, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm going to stop right there. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Paul uses this sort of terminology five times in the New Testament, all within his pastoral epistles. So we'll come across it two more times in our study of the book of 1 Timothy before we get to the other references that are in 2 Timothy and Titus. Paul would use this phrase when bringing up an especially important truth. And here in verse 15, 
such is the case. What is that especially important truth? It's this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And what a glorious truth that is. What a wonderfully important truth for us that is faithful and that is worthy of all acceptance. This is basically the gospel in a nutshell. It is the good news that we preach and believe upon. And this is for each and every one of us because we are all sinners. Christ came to save sinners. And that's you and me. Romans 3.23 states that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, that word all means all. <laughs> it means us, every single last one of us. Every single one of us is a sinner. And as such, we are dead in our trespasses and sin with no hope of ever overcoming our sin. We were lost and we had no means to be found. We needed someone to come rescue us from our sins, to find us and to save us. And that is where Jesus came in. Jesus said of himself as the son of man that he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to seek and to save the sinner. He came to save us from our sins. You know, in John chapter 3, we read of a conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And most all of you are very familiar with John chapter 3, verse 16, right? Um, but I want to draw your attention to verse 17 and 18 this morning, okay? For there, under the cover of night, Nicodemus had come to the Lord with questions, and Jesus answered his questions, and then he proclaimed in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in con is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus came into this world not to condemn us, but to save us. You see, we already stand condemned because we've all sinned and we've not believed upon the only one who can wash away our sins. And so Jesus doesn't come to condemn us. We already stand condemned. We can often paint the wrong picture, I believe, of our Lord as if he's standing up there in heaven, looking down upon us in, in disappointment or in disgust or in anger, that he's ready to, to blast us. But that is not an accurate image. Okay, if you ever think that way, know that that is not an accurate image of our Lord and Savior. Jesus is standing before the Father interceding for us. He isn't our accuser, but he is our advocate. He is our Savior. Jesus doesn't bring accusations against us. He simply brings invitations to us. An invitation to receive His grace. An invitation to receive His love, His forgiveness, His rest. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Listen, if you're a sinner, and you all are, okay, you don't need to fear Jesus. He's reaching out his arms to you. All you need to do is receive him. Jesus came to save sinners, not condemn sinners. May we know that truth, and may we receive that truth, for it is a faithful saying, and it is worthy of all acceptance. Let's continue looking at the very tail end of verse 15, which I purposely left off to note Paul's progression. Read verse 15 again in its entirety this time. Verse 15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul self-identifies here as the chief of all sinners. And there are a couple things I think worth noting about this self-identification. You know, as we recall and look back upon the life of Paul, when he was better known as Saul of Tarsus, we could perhaps understand this sort of title for him. But I want you to note, Paul doesn't say, of whom I was chief, but he says, of whom I am chief. 
Do you guys notice the difference? Paul is speaking in the present tense. Okay? What are we to make of this statement? Had Paul fallen off the deep end and, and fell headlong into sin and depravity at the end of his ministry here? Had he picked back up his persecuting ways and his murderous threats and his blasphemy? No, not at all. That wasn't the case. Well, then how do we explain this? I think it's best explained with an understanding of the progression of statements that Paul makes. You see, early on in his ministry... When writing the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote something in that letter, self-identifying as the least of all the apostles. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. A very humble statement from Paul. Understanding the magnitude of the grace of God upon his life. Understanding that while he was an apostle, he did not feel worthy to be called an apostle, to be linked with the likes of the apostles. Well, Paul wrote that in and around the year 54 AD. That's when most scholars believe he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. And then about six or seven years later, he wrote another book. This time he wrote the book of Ephesians. And there in the book of Ephesians, as this was another six or seven years in the Lord, and he had continued to grow in the Lord, to become more and more intimate with the Lord, Paul made another self-identifying statement. He wrote there in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints... This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so seven or so years further into his relationship with the Lord, Paul now saw himself as less than the least of all the saints. He went from seeing himself as the least of all the apostles to seeing himself as less than the least of all the saints. And then a few years later, okay, after Ephesus, he writes 1 Timothy. And Paul now sees himself as the chief of all sinners. From the least of the apostles to less than the least of the saints to the chief of sinners. What's going on here? The, the more and more Paul walks with the Lord and grows in his intimacy with the Lord, the, the lower and lower and lower he gets. And that's the point I want to make here this morning. You see, the more and more intimate Paul became with the Lord, the more and more he realized the difference between himself and the Lord. The more he realized the magnitude of who Christ is and what he had done for him, the more he realized just how far short he fell from the perfection of Christ. And I believe that will be the same for anyone else who continues to grow in their intimacy with Christ. The closer you get to Christ, the more you realize just how much separates you from Christ. The more you realize just how much the grace of God has done for you. It's a humbling place to come to. The church family, it is a good place to come to for each and every one of us. Paul's progression was a progression in humility in understanding just how much Christ had done for him and just how much Christ loved him. And my hope is that we would experience a similar progression in our own lives and in our own walk with the Lord. That the more you walk with him, the more you would grow in your humility and in your understanding of the magnitude of what Christ has done for you. You know, when I first got saved, I, I would say I was irreverent, okay? It's like, wow, you know, Jesus is like my buddy, and, you know, like, he saved me. That's so cool, you know? And there was just this, like, very half-hearted type of relationship, okay? But the more I grew, the more I read, the more I grew in my walk with the Lord, the more I realized, man, like, I was, I was really messed up, <laughs> And he is not. Like, he is 
way, way, way up here, and, and I'm way, 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 way down here. It's a humbling work, but it's a necessary work that I believe God wants to do in each and every one of us. And so that is my hope for us, that we would have that similar type of progression in our own walk. Let's continue on. Let's take a look at verse 16 where we read of Paul's pattern and what it teaches us. Verse 16 says, However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Uh, here in the New King James, verse 16 is a little wordy, um, maybe a little hard to follow around and jumps around a little bit, but I really like the simplicity of how the New Living Translation translates verse 16. I want to read it to you. This is how it reads, verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realize that they, too, can believe in Him and receive eternal life. Paul's life began a, a pattern for those who would come to faith in Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. And, and, and the pattern that's laid out is a pattern of God's grace, of God's long-suffering, His patience with even the worst of sinners. Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. He lived his life with the sole aim of destroying the church of God. And yet even he was not beyond the reach of the amazing, exceedingly abundant grace of God. No one can ever say, I've just gone too far. Or I'm just too dirty. God can't clean me up. There's just no turning back. There's no hope for me. I'm just a, a lost cause. Listen, church family, if God's grace could reach a blasphemer and persecutor like Saul of Tarsus and make him into Paul the apostle, well, then there is hope for everyone, okay? None are beyond the reach of the grace of God and the love of God. That is the lesson that Paul's pattern of life, his own testimony, the way God worked in his life, that is what it teaches us. That if God could save a sinner like Saul of Tarsus and make him into a new man, well, then he can do that for anyone. But not only are there none outside the reach of God's grace and, and love, I think the Paul's pattern also shows us something else that I want to highlight. And, and I want to do so just by looking at one of the teachings of Jesus Christ in the gospel, Luke. Some of you may be familiar with this account. One day, Jesus was invited to the house of a certain Pharisee named Simon to eat and to break bread together. And as Jesus sat down to eat, a woman who was a sinner came in with an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and she began to weep at Jesus' feet, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and tears, anointing his feet with her fragrant oil. Now, when Simon the Pharisee saw this, he thought to himself, oh, this man, well, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touched him, for she is a sinner. Well, Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. And then Jesus proceeded to tell the parable of the two debtors to Simon, stating, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, oh, I, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus replied, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. 
Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And through this parable, Jesus teaches us that those who are forgiven little, the same love little. But the implication for those who have been forgiven much is that they will love much. Now, I want to be very careful here what I'm saying, okay? I am not advocating that we go out and sin a whole bunch as it means to increase our love for the Lord. But I do see a principle, a principle that I believe fits the pattern of Paul's own life. Paul had been forgiven much, and as a result, as Paul got closer and closer to the Lord, the more he realized just how much he had been forgiven, the more he realized just how much his life depended upon the grace of God, the more he realized just how great God's love was for him, well, the deeper Paul's appreciation for the love the love of God grew. And Paul's love for the Lord grew out of that appreciation for all that God had done for him. Paul could grow into that deep love and appreciation for the Lord because he understood the magnitude of the grace and the forgiveness and the love that had poured, been poured out upon him. And it's not a matter of which of us is a greater sinner, okay? It's a matter of how much we understand how great our sin is, right? If we've blown it once, right, we're guilty of it all. Okay? Those who think, oh, I'm a pretty good person, you know, I, I make a mistake every now and then, guess what? Their, their love for the Lord's not going to be that great. But the person who knows and understands <laughs> I am a wretched man, and I have been forgiven so much. It's that person that's going to be able to love the Lord with the right kind of heart. The more we understand and realize the same thing that Paul realized, I believe the more our love for the Lord will grow. And so my hope is not that you would go out and sin a bunch in order to increase your capacity for God's love, but that we would grow in our understanding of the magnitude of grace that's been extended to us, that we would grow in our understanding of just how much God did for us. And as a result, we would grow in our capacity, capacity to love God all the more. Let's take a look at our final verse, Paul's praise that resulted from this personal retrospect of his. Read verse 17 with me, and then we'll wrap up our study. He says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As Paul considered all that God had done for him and through him, as he thought of God's enabling him and God's mercy that allowed him to be faithful and how God put him into the ministry and the joy and the pleasure that he had from it, as he thought about the life he once lived and how God had reached out to him with his grace and mercy resulting in faith and love in Christ, as he considered the simple yet powerful statement about Christ coming into the world to save sinners like himself, the chief of sinners, as he reflected upon how his life would be used as a pattern and an example to any who would think that they were beyond the grace of God, as he contemplated all these things, the only natural response was for him to praise God. And so he breaks out in this spontaneous praise here at the end of our text. Paul was so moved as he considered all that God had done and was continuing to do that he burst out in praise. And it seems to me that that was the appropriate response. And then that should be our response as well. That when we look back and we realize that all that God has done in us and through us, the grace that's been extended to us, the love that's been poured out upon us, that our response would be to just, all we could do is praise you, God. And we would have that spontaneous just outburst of praise. He writes, to the King eternal, 
This is the sovereign, self-existent one who always was, always is, and always and forever will be. He is the immortal, okay? the one whom death has no power over. He is incorruptible, invisible, and yet he revealed to us, revealed himself to us through his son and through his spirit who dwells in us, who alone is wise. The wisdom of our God is beyond all comprehension, beyond all others. He says, be honor and glory forever and ever. May we never cease praising Him, honoring Him, and bestowing upon Him the glory that is due His name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your great love for us. Lord, we thank You for Your amazing, exceedingly abundant grace. Words fail us, Lord, to properly explain the grace that's been poured out upon us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that each and every day that we walk with you, that we would grow more and more in our understanding of the grace that's been poured out upon us. And Lord, as we understand that grace and we realize all that you've done for us, Lord, that our response would be praise, that our response would be to to glorify you forever and ever. Lord, I do ask, Lord, that we would grow. We would grow in our understanding, our realization of all that you've done for us. Lord, that it might increase our capacity to love you all the more. Lord, we thank you for coming and and dying upon the cross for us and extending that grace to us. Not of ourselves, Lord. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But because you love us. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you and we thank you and we can never thank you enough for your son, for his sacrifice, for the grace that's been extended to us, the forgiveness of sins, the love poured out upon us. Lord, that you would invite us to be your sons and daughters. (laughs) How amazing that is. May we never lose sight of that fact. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.